You know, if I were to sit down with you guys, you know, we got together for a cup of coffee because that's what I do when I sit down. I drink a cup of coffee when I sit down. So I drink a lot of coffee because I sit down a lot. Um, but if I did, if I sat down with you and we began to talk and I just asked you the question, hey, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? What's your vision? What's your hope for the future? How would you answer that question? I'm guessing just looking around the room that some of you would talk about graduating or a desire to be married or maybe have children. Some of you would talk about your aspirations for jobs, what you want to do as far as a career, what you want your home to look like, where you want to live, what you want to do when you retire, some big accomplishment that you hope to work on and give yourself to. And those are all good things, right? We all have hopes. We all have aspirations. We all have desires for our lives. And so what's yours? What's your vision for your life? Now, I'm curious. How many of you, when I asked that question, thought about Christ? I wonder how many of you, when I asked that question, you thought about eternity. I wonder how many of you thought about spiritual transformation, about growing in holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness. I wonder how many of you thought about God's glory and what he wants for your life. You know, God has a vision for your life. You know that, right? It's written on every page of Scripture. That God has a plan that is unfolding in history. And I'm just curious, if you put up your vision that I just, when I asked the initial question, those first thoughts that popped into your head, if you put those up against God's vision that we see throughout Scripture, how would they line up? You know, it's amazing if there's a contradiction between God's vision for our lives and our vision for our lives, it reveals what we love. It reveals what we exalt and what we serve and what we're living for. It's one of the quickest ways that we can identify potential idols in our hearts. You see, we were called to live for God's vision for our lives, not ours. We're seeking to identify ourselves with him and his purposes for our lives, not our own. Now, if you're not familiar with the storyline of Scripture, every single page, on every word of every single page, gives revelation of God's vision for his creation, God's purposes for all that he has made. And most specifically, that vision is to redeem a people of his own possession, who he will eternally reconcile to himself through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That's God's primary objective. And every word on every page leads to that. It shows that God has and that God is and that God will be working to make sure that his vision of the future becomes a reality. He's proven it. He's doing it. And he will not fail to accomplish his purposes. God's vision culminates in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. I mean, the book of Revelation is really, it's an extended vision of God's future for his people. And there's a lot of passages that I could point to in the book of Revelation, but one that sticks out to me is actually one that Jim used as his benediction last week. It's Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. This presents God's purposed vision, his sure future for his people. The Apostle Paul writes, or I'm sorry, the Apostle John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb, that is Jesus has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. 
Friends, this is God's vision. This is God's purpose. God's future for his creation, for his church universally and locally, and for each and every person whom the Lord has called to himself. This is God's vision for you and me. As Christians, we are called to live in light of that vision, God's vision for our future and not our own. And yet so often, we see that we try to exalt ourselves. We try to be the vision casters. We try to live as though we're preeminent, we're ultimate, we're first in our lives. And, and so we, we scratch out these visions for ourselves, these hopes for our future, and we're clawing and grasping at the idea of them, just trying to make them a reality, as if we are the ones to be worshipped. And if each of us here are living out every day trying to scratch out and make that life vision that we've created a reality, how could we possibly live together as the church of God? The truth is we can't. We need a greater vision. And that's why for these seven weeks we are going to be unpacking the vision statement of Redeemer Church. Based upon God's vision that we see presented in Scripture, the vision of Redeemer Church, the vision that you and I are to make our own, is this. Because we exist to exalt Christ, we strive to see lives transformed to the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit to all peoples. This vision statement we believe encapsulates God's vision for our future as individuals and as members of his church both universally and locally and it's our prayer that as we dig in and unfold the layers of this statement over these next seven weeks this won't just be a phrase or a slogan that you find on the banner when you come in on Sunday morning or you look at on our website or you see on church documents or pieces of paper somewhere. That is not what we want. We pray that you would see it as a vision for your future, as a vision for our future. And so this morning... I'm going to deal with the foundation clause, the ground for why we are here, the reason why we worship. And it's found in that very first proposition, because we exist to exalt Christ. We are here. We exist. We have life and breath and being because we were created to worship Christ and not ourselves. We were created to give him glory, not seek glory for ourselves. We were made so that he might be preeminent, that he might be first, not you and not me. And being the expositor that I am, we're going to see that this morning from one text, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. You can find it on page 983 in the Bibles that are in the chairs. I encourage you to open your Bibles, keep them there. We're going to be looking at the text often. This is an amazing text that just exalts Christ. And so let's listen to God's word about what he says and how he describes that Jesus is first over all. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now just a little bit of background on Colossians. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. 
It's a church that he didn't plant, a church that he had never been. But it was a church where false teachers had crept in, and they were trying to add to the gospel. Okay? It's not like they had abandoned the gospel or the tenets of faith. What they were trying to do was add to it, trying to mix in Jewish traditions, trying to mix in these self-denying practices, trying to mix in sort of uh, mystic spiritual experiences. And they're saying, okay, the foundation, that core of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, that's not enough. What you need is to follow these religious traditions. Following Jesus in and of itself is not enough. What you need to do is deny yourself all sorts of things. Following Jesus is not enough in and of itself. What you have to do is have these spiritual experiences. Right? That's what they were doing. They were adding to the gospel. But anytime you add to the gospel, you actually take away from it. What they're saying ultimately is, you know what? You Christians in Colossae, it's not enough to worship Jesus. It's not enough just to live your lives to exalt him. And that might seem foreign to you in some sense, but I, I assure you that it is, it is very, very relevant to your life right now. Because every moment of every day, you are barraged with a bunch of ideas. The world tells you, our culture tells you, that it is not enough for you to give your life to exalt Christ. It treats it as a waste. It's not enough for you to live for him. You, your life needs to be for so much more. And though the world might not tell you to worship angels, what it does tell you is that you need to make your life about something more meaningful, like family or your occupation or your home, or your possessions, or your accomplishments, or the idea of having a spouse, or sex, or entertainments, or comforts. It's not enough to worship Jesus. It's not enough to exalt Him. You have to have something else. And anytime you add to the gospel, anytime you try to push these things into your heart, what you're doing is pushing Jesus to the side, to the periphery of your life. He's no longer first. And Paul's saying, no. You can't do that. Jesus is preeminent over all things. This passage, Colossians 1, 15-20, is a beautiful and a poetic reminder that Jesus Christ is first over all. Everything. Just by way of structure, it's divided into two sections. Verses 15 through 17 focus in on creation. And then verses 18 through 20 focus in on redemption or rescue. And within these two sections, it's structured so that it highlights, it has a statement about Jesus' nature, his authority, and his purposes in the world. There's a symmetry in the arrangement of these two sections. A statement of who Jesus is. A statement of how he is first, how he's preeminent, how he is supreme, how he is ultimate. And then it provides a reason or explanation as to why Jesus is first. And you see that break down. We're going to look through these. These reasons are all, uh, they, they connect all things to Jesus, either through creation or through reconciliation to God. I mean, just in a cursory reading of it, you probably saw how it repeated the phrase, all things. I mean, look at it, all things, all things, all things. And then there's these prepositional phrases that all things are by him, all things are through him, all things are to him, all things are for him, all things are in him. Paul wants us to understand that Jesus is first over all. And the reason why he wants you to understand that because Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient because Jesus is supreme. He's enough. He is everything. There is nothing that exists apart from him. Therefore, we live to exalt him. We live to give him praise. And it's sort of an interesting note that this passage is so structured 
that many biblical scholars actually believe that it was a hymn or a praise song in the early church. So as we examine it, I want you to imagine yourself singing this, proclaiming in one voice that we exist to exalt Christ. So in our time remaining, let's, let's focus in on these two sections and unpack what it says about Jesus' nature, his preeminence, and how all things are found in him. So first, in verses 15 through 17, Jesus is first over all creation. There in verse 15, Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And in this short phrase, there's a lot there. Paul is basically telling us that Jesus is God. Okay? He's not an image of God the way an idol images Buddha or Dagon or Kali. He's not imaging God the way I had images of Michael Jordan plastered on my wall growing up. Okay? It's as the writer of Hebrews describes it in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the exact imprint. He is the same nature as his Father. The Son of God in every way is the same as his Father, the same glory, the same nature. You know, when I was growing up, my, a lot of people used to tell me that I, I was the spitting image of my grandfather, right? the spitting image of my grandfather. And what they meant was they saw him in me. Right? They saw his nature. They saw his character. They saw his attributes. They saw his being. I was the same as my granddad. Jesus is not less than God. He's not simply the first created being or a moral teacher, or a philosopher, or a prophet, or simply a great man, Jesus is fully divine. He has the same nature as his Father. The same way my kids are made in my image. They're not less human than I am. Right? Shorter versions, more active versions, but they're the same as me. And so it is with Jesus. The Son of God is God. The Son has ever existed in a filial relationship with the Father. He has always existed as the Father to the Son in that relationship. But there's still more to this phrase, image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God because he makes the invisible visible. He makes the unseen seen. In our children's catechism, we ask the question, can you see God? And the answer is no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. Well, that's only partially true because if you keep reading the New Testament, what you see is, wait, we see God in Jesus. It's like John 1, 18 says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, the Son of God, makes the invisible God visible in him We see God. But there's even more to it than that. I mean, in this, in this verses 15 through 17, Paul is actually borrowing on language from Proverbs 8 that personifies God's wisdom. And if you read Proverbs 8, God's wisdom is personified as a man. Okay? And it's there with God in creation. It has certain attributes, certain being. And now here is Jesus, whom Paul describes as the embodiment of all God's wisdom. He is the personal embodiment of, all, of God's very nature. And so if you add all of this up, and there's a whole lot more, but if you add all of this up, the first part of Paul's answer to why we exist to exalt Christ is because Jesus is the God of all creation. But after this statement of Jesus' nature, He then says regarding Jesus' preeminence, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. This this phrase has caused confusion throughout the history of the church. I mean, one of the the big heresies that we dealt with in, in the fourth century was over this issue, the Arian controversy. People thought that Jesus was the first created being, that there was a time when he was not. But that's not just for days gone by, because it's still an issue today. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses believe like Arius that Jesus was the first created being, that there was a time when he was not. But that is not at all what this term means. I mean, just first of all, I mean, the very next verse argues that Jesus created all things. And this doesn't mean that he created all things except himself. It means that all things that were created, he created. Everything that was created, he created. But even more than that, it's just a misunderstanding of the term firstborn. Okay, it's not talking about physical birth, like he was the first thing born. But rather, it's a matter of position. See, the firstborn in creation, it's meant to signify the rights and privileges of the only beloved son to the father. It's a difficult concept in our culture because we live in a society that, that promotes this, a, a faulty understanding of equality. Right? Like if, if I was to give something to my kids according to my, our culture, in order for me to be fair, I would have to distribute all things equally. We wouldn't be right if I were to decide I was going to give everything to Layden or most of it to Layden, even though he's my oldest. But that's the, the culture here is different. Okay? In Paul's day, the firstborn or eldest son would lead or rule in the place of his father. He would have a unique inheritance the way the eldest prince, the firstborn uh, male, would inherit the crown of his father, the king the inheritor of the realm and rule of his father. And it proves that Jesus is above it. This is what Paul is conveying here. Jesus as firstborn over all creation means that he ranks above it, that he rules over it, that he's Lord of it. He is king. He is Lord of it all. With all the rights and privileges and sovereignty of his father. And not only is he the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul says that the reason that we know this is found there in verse 16, for by him all things were created. Paul's saying here, Jesus created everything. Jesus is to be worshipped as Lord over all creation because he made it. And as the one who makes it, you own it. And just so that we're not confused about what Paul means by all things, he gives us a very encompassing description, right? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Did Paul leave anything out there? Did Paul forget to look at every location? Did he forget to check under the cupboard? You know, did, did, or under the bed. Did he, did he leave out the things that aren't seen? Did Paul say, well, you know, Jesus, you know, he created all things. He rules over all things except for mm, Osama bin Laden. Except for the, the powers and rulers and dominions and authorities that exist out there. He's not over them. Is that how Paul describes it? No. Not at all. No, all things really means all things. It is comprehensive and exhaustive. Jesus created all things. From the leaves on the trees to the furthest star in the universe, from every living creature to every angel that is in heaven, from the weakest and most marginalized in society to the greatest superpower in the world that you can imagine, Jesus created them all. He rules over them all. And in the Bible, we see this lived out in the history of Israel. This is one of the beauties of the Old Testament. I know it can be tedious and confusing if you're not familiar with the Bible, but I mean, if you read it, what you see throughout Scripture is that God raises up kingdoms, that he sets the boundaries and the periods and the parameters of their days, and he uses the greatest superpowers on earth, like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. He, he raises them up, uses them to judge other nations, and when they're done, when he's done with them, he judges them as well. He shows that he is sovereign over them all. If you question that, just read. go home and read Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10 will blow your mind. Right? Assyria, the rod of his anger, 
who he's going to use to judge nations. And when he is done, he is going to judge their haughty spirits. Because they weren't doing that in obedience to God. It's amazing. God rules over it all. I mean, didn't we, didn't we catch this when Jim preached through Obadiah? Edom, don't exalt over the fact that Israel was destroyed because guess what? God is going to restore Israel and you are going to be crushed. It's a faithful summary of Obadiah? I think so. So from the president of the United States to the most tyrannical warlord that you can imagine, Jesus reigns over them all. And this is not just earthly powers that he's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual powers as well. So that it's just as John Piper says, that there's never one moment of time where Satan is not off of his leash. Don't believe that. Read the beginning of Job. Jesus is Lord over all. And so why did Jesus, the Lord of all creation, create all things? Well, to answer that question, you just look at the prepositional phrases. Verse 16, all things were created by him. He's the maker. He's the means by which all things came to be. Skip down. All things were created through him and for him. What this passage is saying is that Jesus is the origin and the goal of all creation. Creation exists for his glory. To reveal who he is, his rule, his kingship, his sovereignty, his power. He made it. He owns it. He rules over it. And in the end, it's going to clearly be seen by all as his. And you are a part of that. It shows that he is preeminent in all things so that he might be exalted. This is why everything exists As creator, he owns it and rules over it all. All things exist for his glory. But if this were not enough, Paul adds in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the first time I understood what Paul meant here, it blew my mind. It literally did. The supremacy of Christ is demonstrated in that as its creator, he is before all things. He ranks before it. But Paul also adds that Jesus sustains all things. As the writer of Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you get what that means? Not only did Jesus create all that there is, but the very existence of all there is is sustained by the power of Christ. He is the glue that holds it all together. As I think it was Calvin once said that if he were to remove his hand but an inch, all that is would cease to be. Everything that we know to be true exists because he holds it together. Every force continues steadily and is dependable and measurable. We can understand science because Jesus makes it possible. All the laws, natural laws that govern the universe, he holds in place. The very reason why atoms do not split apart as electrons speed around nucleus, even though according to physics that should never happen, is because Jesus holds them together. All that is, is there because he maintains it. The beat of your heart happens because Jesus gives it to you. The very breath that you take, even to curse his name, is given by Christ himself. That is humbling. When you get that, it is humbling. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, have you just, have you ever sat back and contemplated creation? I mean, really, really thought about, just looked and observed the world around you, the vastness, the complexity, the detail, the beauty, the creativity, the just the immensity of it all. It doesn't matter whether you're here as a believer or not. 
I mean, have you ever asked the question, why am I here? Why do I exist? What's my purpose in life? And you take that and you look and you contemplate the complexity and vastness of creation when you consider the detail, even within a single-celled organism or the variety of plants and animals or the, or t- the, the rotation of the earth around the sun so that we can mark years and days and it causes the waves to crash steadily and regularly upon the shore. I mean, how could we not look at that and stand in awe of creation and just... So, just be befuddled before the Lord. I mean, I, I, I tell you, like, I don't like to mow my lawn, but my lawn can be a worship, mowing my lawn can be a worship experience because I see the variety even in my lawn. I have a small yard. It is not pretty. There are lots of weeds, but God created those weeds. And in my mess of a yard, I can't even tell you the numbers of different types of grasses there are. Why are there so many grasses? Because God is amazingly creative. And it is proclaiming his glory. My yard proclaims the glory of God. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I stand in awe of what you see around you. It is amazing and marvelous. There is a purpose to creation. And if you just think about it, just open your eyes, behold the wonder and worship as you marvel in the scope and the detail of all there is. And then how can we take those thoughts when we're actually thinking rightly about creation and then so quickly toss them aside and disregard them and say the reason that I exist is to make much of me. The reason why I exist, the reason why I am here, the purpose in my being created is to bring glory to myself to worship myself, to find my satisfaction in sex or in the idea of finding a spouse. My my reason for being here is, is to get good grades or to make good money or to strive to be successful in life. I mean, how can we look at creation in light of this text and say to ourselves, the reason that I exist, the reason that I'm here is to enjoy comforts and pleasures and to fritter the hours of the days of my life away in movies and games and trivial pop culture. Yet for most of us, that's what our lives are about. Do you not see the futility in it all? You don't see the foolishness in it. But more than that, I want you to understand this. You were created for so much more. You exist. You've been given life for a purpose that goes far beyond what you live every day for. And I want you to catch that. It is no waste to live your life for the Lord of all creation. The truth is, it is a waste to live for anything less. And so Jesus is first over all creation. But he's not only the Lord of all creation. Verses 18 through 20 tell us that Jesus is first because of redemption. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not only is Jesus first because of he created all things, but Jesus is first because of redemption. This might be a big word, but redemption basically means to be freed or to be rescued by purchase. 
Okay, the way freedom is purchased for a slave, someone who cannot get out. You see, all of us either were or maybe currently are in bondage to our sin and rebellion against God. We have all tried to live our lives without him as if this is my world and I am God. I am ruler. I am in control. And in our rebellion or our rejection or even our neglect of God, we place ourselves at enmity with God. We consider ourselves at war with him. Whether you are conscious of that every day or not, that is the way that you live. And that rebellion, that sin is enslaving. We cannot free ourselves from it. But Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. He paid the ransom that held many captive, rescuing them from their slavery to sin. And the purchase price of his redemption, of our freedom, of our peace with God, was his own blood. Think about it this for a minute. The Lord of all creation, the Lord that created you, the Lord that sustained your life, the Lord that has allowed you to live as a God-hater, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels, he condescended and died for us. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. He is first over all, and yet we've rejected him. And the only hope that we have for rescue is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not something that you earn. This is not something that you pay back. Paul wants to make absolutely clear that salvation is not something that we attain. It is a work that God accomplishes. Look up at verse 11, chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. This is Paul's prayer to the Colossians. It says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So who strengthens believers with all power for endurance, with patience, with joy? God according to his glorious might. Who has qualified believers to share in the inheritance of the saints of light? God. Who has delivered believers from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son? God. And in whom do we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin? In his beloved son. And how do we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin? Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. You know, another way you might think about redemption is recreation. Just as God made all things, it's God who remakes all things. Just as God caused you to be born again, to have life, and that was not by your own will. As 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, it is God who caused you to be born again to a living hope. It is God who gives life, new life, eternal life in Christ Jesus. But it's interesting. Look at the way that Paul talks about Jesus' authority and redemption in verse 18. Just look at it. Paul says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Paul doesn't simply describe Jesus as the Lord of individual salvation. He could have talked about him being the redeemer. He could have talked about him being the deliverer. But no, he says he's the head of the body, the church. He is the head. He is first. He is the authority in the church. Do you see how Paul places the church at the center of redemption? The very center of it. He doesn't even begin describing redemption. He goes straight to the church because redemption is found in the church. You have to recognize that it's not as though Paul says, hey, redemption necessary, church optional. That is not what he says. Faith in Christ is not about you and Jesus. It's not simply this personal 
feeling or acquiescence or, or just individual faith. It is corporate in nature. When God qualified you, when he delivered you, when he transferred you, it's not so that you can live in isolation to yourself. He saved you into Jesus' body, the church. God didn't save you to be an island. You were to be a part of community. You were to live as a kingdom citizen, a part of his church, living together under the direction and the leadership of Jesus Christ. And not only does Christ sustain your earthly life, but he sustains your spiritual life as well. And he does that through his pre-established means of the church. You do recognize that the church was his idea. It's not an accident. It's not an option. It's his established means of your growth. I know that some of you have stories of being hurt in church. Hey, guess what? We're sinners. I'm a sinner. I have. Maybe I am. Don't mean to. And I will hurt some of you. And I pray that I don't. But even if that's the case, that's no excuse not to obey Christ. All right? That's hypocritical to say, oh, this man sinned against me, or this group sinned against me, these people sinned against me, and I'm hurt by that, therefore I am not going to obey Christ in this. It's not an option. It's not an option for you to say that you are in Christ and not be part of his church. I mean, how could you say that you are in Christ and not be a part of his body? It's a legitimate question. And furthermore, you've got to answer the question, what is the church? What is it? We'll key you in on a little fact. It's not a building. We're a church. We don't own this building. We're here one day a week. No, according to this text, it's a body. It is a member-connected-to-member organism that is assembled by, held together by, and led by Jesus Christ. It is the gospel community. Now, can you truly be a Christian? Can you truly be in Christ if you are not identified with his body? Can you truly be in Christ if you are not finding your sustenance and your life and your growth through the means by which he has established for you? Can you truly be in Christ and not submit yourself to his design, to his rule, to his command, to his ordinances, to his authority? You're going to have a really hard time justifying that biblically. In fact, I promise you, you cannot. But if Christ is your Lord and Savior, the better question is, why would you want to? Why would you want to try to stand on the outside and determine what you are willing and unwilling to do? Why would you not want to obey Christ in all things? Why would you not want to submit yourself to his design, to his purposes, regardless of hurts, regardless of confusion in past churches, regardless of of what other people have done wrong? It makes no sense. If he is Lord of the church, if he is head of the church, and he is to be your head, follow him. And you can't simply excuse this away by saying, well, Paul is talking about the universal church here. I I can be a part of the universal church and not be a part of the local church. I'm sure some of you have heard that. And I would say, I agree with you. Paul is talking about the universal church in this passage. I think so. But you have to ask the question of who's he writing to? Who is Paul taking these implications of living life in the universal church and applying them to specifically to a local church? The implications for living as a member of Christ's universal body is to be lived out in the context of a local body. 
in a covenant membership with other followers of Christ, where they see themselves as being connected, not strangers. There is no universal church in God's mind divorced from the local church. None at all. And I know I'm rattling on this, and I apologize, but I don't. I'm half apology. That's a half. What is that? I don't know what a half apology is. Strike that from the record. (laughs) Before we move further in this text, I have to ask you: What is the priority set for the local church? Right? What is most essential? Like when you think you're deciding on, okay, what church do I want to be a part of? Where do I want to go? Where do I want to unite? Who who do I want to, you know, just hang arms with, so come around side and, and, and join with? Who do I want to look for? What is most essential? Well, he gives us a clue. He says it's the size of the church, right? Oh, <laughs> no, because historically churches met in homes. They're smaller than what we have right here. Maybe it's the style of music. Do you see that kind of anywhere? I mean, Colossians 3 kind of talks about that a little bit, but is it? No. What about programs for my kids? No. Performance, style, none of that's there. Oh, what about this one? A bunch of people my age. I want to go to a church because there's a bunch of people my own age. No. The litmus test in this passage for the priority of the local church is how well they are following the head how well they are following Christ. How well are they following him in their teaching, in their ministry, in their love for one another? How well do they live according to God's revealed word to us? That is the priority. That is what matters. Everything else at best is preference. At worst is self-centered consumerism. And so as you're thinking about that, wherever the Lord leads you, keep this in mind. What is most essential for a local church is how well it follows the head, how well it follows Christ. I'm moving on now. So Paul describes Jesus' nature in redemption as the head of the church, the beginning. But then he continues, just like he did in the previous section, by making a statement of Christ's preeminence. Not only is he the firstborn of all creation, but Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Why? So that in everything he might be preeminent. Have I explained this word well enough? Preeminence means first, it means ultimate, it means supreme. It means he's numero uno. Right? Jesus is to be first. He says he's the firstborn from the dead. Do you realize that wherever you go, wherever the Lord leads you, he's gone there first? There's never a place that's outside of that, even in, in the resurrection. Jesus was the first being resurrected to glory. He is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is huge. It's a guarantee that all will rise and stand before him in judgment. Either you're going to meet him in the air or you're going to be raised from the dead. But the living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked, all will stand before him in judgment. We have that as a guarantee through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you ready to give an account to him? Are you ready to give an account to the one who made you, to the one who sustained you, to the one who has given you life, the one who has offered redemption through his own blood, the one who is called you to himself i mean are you going to are you ready to stand before him he deserves first place in your life but jesus resurrection from the dead proves that he was the son of god it proves that god's wrath against our sin has been satisfied there's no longer any reason to remain in the grave because he has defeated the power and penalty of sin death is no more all will be raised and get this guys jesus resurrection is a guarantee that there is hope for change there's hope of new life in christ that you are not bound and defeated by your sin you will not always be this way jesus resurrection is a guarantee of that
There's no longer any reason for you to remain a slave to your sin, to remain under his Okay, that's better. Thank you, Joel. What was I talking about? (laughs) Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is first. (laughs) Done. Close. Close your Bible. Let's pray. (laughs) Uh, Technology. Um, Yeah. In everything, Jesus is meant to be preeminent. And Paul can make this point clearer. In life or in new life, in creation or new creation, first place belongs to him alone. And so do you not see that to deny him his first place in your life is to deny him as Lord? Okay, to be a Christian, we're saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's what we profess. It's what we sang about earlier. Jesus is Lord. Do we really live that way? Guys, you have to recognize that when you place other things first, you are going against your profession of faith. And that is real. It's real. Can't minimize that or excuse that away or presume upon the grace of God. Though he is gracious and treats us far better than we ever deserve. As a follower of Christ, we want to live as if Jesus is Lord. Because in verses 19 through 20, Paul gives us the reason why Jesus is preeminent in all things. Christians understand this. This is your hope. This is your future. This is why you are to live as if Jesus Christ is Lord, because he is. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is first over all because he is divine, and Jesus is first over all because he has reconciled to himself all things. Just like he said before, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I I told you that that means that Jesus is God. Here he says it plainly. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. He says the same thing in Colossians 2 verse 9 when he says, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. All of his attributes... All of his activities, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, his praise, his honor, his glory, and his blessings reside in Jesus Christ. God is fully and perfectly displayed in him. There is no honor. There is no glory. There is no blessing outside of Jesus Christ. He is fully God. But not only is he fully God, but he is also fully man who shed his blood as a perfect sacrifice, just like you and me, to make peace between God and man. And his sacrifice not only reconciled repentant sinners to God, but it says that all things were reconciled to him because of his sacrifice. What does he mean, all things? Didn't he just define that? All things really means all things. Not speaking of universalism here, that everyone will be saved no matter what. All things will be reconciled to him. All things will have to give an account. All things will be reckoned to him, either for glorification, for eternal reconciliation to everlasting life with God or to destruction. All things will be reconciled to him. The entire cosmos will be reconciled to him. Let me think about this for a minute. 
storyline of Scripture, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, right, because they wanted to be like God. And as they were acting in this desire to be like God, the whole world was changed. There was a cosmic upheaval to all there was. Death entered into the world. Sin nature was born in man. We are corrupt. We constantly want to live as if this is my world and I'm God. We want to walk in the sins of Adam. Thorns and thistles grew. Work and productivity became very difficult. There was enmity between man and woman and man and everything else. This was the effect of sin. It is cataclysmic in nature. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that all creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Adam who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself would be set free from this bondage of corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you hear what he's saying here? Do you see the dramatic cosmic consequences of our rebellion to God? Have you thought about your sin this way? Cosmic upheaval. Put yourself in the place of Adam. Put your sin struggle and you in the place of Adam. Do you realize that the same result would occur? Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God. Basically, that's the root behind all our sins. So whether yours is lust, or yours is pride, or yours is gossip, or yours is covetousness, I mean, place it in the spot of Adam, and then we could say the exact same thing. The exact same consequence would occur. That is just how potent your sin really is. Cosmic upheaval. All of creation, the entire universe, shares the same fate as man. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were made subject to futility. And all creation was in bondage to corruption too. And when the children of God obtained the freedom of glory, meaning eternal reconciliation to God, then all things, whether on earth or in heaven, will be reconciled to God. Either to be restored to its original and glorious, even glorious order, better than it was, or to destruction. Jesus' sacrifice for sin will bring peace to the entire universe. All that is will be held accountable to him. He will change all things. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What that means is, no matter how much you want to try to live for yourselves, is that this is your world and your God, that you want to be Lord over your own life, it is only a matter of time before you will bow the knee before Jesus. And ultimately, where do you want to be on that day? In submission, recognizing the grace and mercy of God and restoring sinners to himself, people who do not deserve it, who he gives life and breath and being? Or do you want to continue to rebel against him and hate him and live for yourself and spurn his name? Even then, you will end on your knees and you cannot help but say, Jesus is Lord. But then it will be too late. By now it ought to be clear. We exist to exalt Christ. That is why we are here. If you're struggling with purposelessness in your life, you have nothing to fear. You've been told the answer. You exist to exalt Christ. We owe our lives and even our breath to him. We owe our redemption to him. Jesus, the Son of God, paid the perfect penalty that our cosmos-altering sin deserves, a sin that we can never right. 
That is not a wrong that you can pay back. That is not a wrong that you can correct by saying a sinner's prayer or going through a ritual. This is the work of God. Trying to pay, earn your salvation or pay it back is like trying to go and find every tree or bush that has a thorn or thistle and pulling it, trying to pull them off. Or trying to bring the dead back to life. You can't do it. Only He can. And though He owns us by right as our Creator and Sustainer, He bought us again by His own blood. If you are in Christ, you are twice owned. It is glorious. And I pray that you would catch the reality of this. Because when you do, when you recognize that your life is owed to Christ in two ways, how could you live for anything else? Why would you want to? How could we exalt in anything but Christ. And if you're struggling with the idea that your sin is somehow beyond hope, that you've just done too much, that you have spurned his name, that there's no way that you can change, read this text in hope. Because what he says here is that the cosmos the universe that was subject to decay, to futility, to corruption. The entire universe was subject to that, but Christ is reconciling all of that to himself. The entire universe will be made new. If he can do that, then he can cover your sin. It doesn't matter how bad it is. So come to him. You know, if we're honest, we know that we exalt in other things. We'll find a million different reasons in our own hearts to live for something else. You know, some of you even right now are putting relationships or the idea of relationships before Christ. And you're considering doing all sorts of things with your life in order to make that a reality. Some of you are living for the idea of success or acknowledgement. Maybe it's just, I, you know, I live every day just trying to get good grades. I'm consumed with trying to please my boss or to get that, commo- that promotion or to, to please the elders in, because I'm in an internship. Some of you are rejecting the idea that God might have a different purpose for your life than what you have. And you're dead set on, I am going this way. And to be quite frank and blunt, and I apologize, to hell with what God thinks. Still others, it's comfort and security and pleasures and entertainments. We long to just escape, to have that time to ourselves, to, to just veg out watching TV. I'm, I'm unhappy, so I'm going to go and I'm going to eat. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of risking in this relationship. So I'm rather, I'm going to fantasize about sexual encounters and give my life over to idleness, just foolish behaviors. And every one of us by nature seeks to exalt ourselves. We continue and we will continue in those same patterns until we find something that is better. Until we catch a vision for something that is greater. For we are given a greater affection. Friends, this passage tells us that Jesus is greater. We exist to exalt Him. And our lives are wasted on anything less. And so what I want us to do for the next couple of moments is to think, sit here silently and just reflect. What is it that you have been putting first before Christ? What have you exalted in? How have you made this, whatever it is, supreme? How have you made it first? How have you made it ultimate? 
What is it that you think to yourself, I can't live without this, or if I don't have this, I don't know how I can go on. And let this be a time of silent confession. I I want us to pray that we would turn away from those things and to put Christ first in our lives. We actually don't put Christ first in our lives. He is. We just need to recognize the fact that he is. But I don't want us to just sit there. I want you to move away from confession to meditating on the supremacy of Christ in this passage. I pray that even in these few moments, you would behold the wonder of the Lord of creation and redemption, that you would glory and marvel and rejoice in the fact of who Jesus is and what he has done, that there is no end to him. And I pray that you would exalt Christ, that he would be first overall, not just in theory, but in your heart as well. Let's take time now to confess and to meditate.